Welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast with Dr. Raj Dasgupta, a show all about educating patients, students, and aspiring doctors about better patient care. Dr. Raj is a quadruple board certified physician and associate professor at the University of Southern California. He was a co-host of the TNT series, Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry, as well as a regular on the TV show, The Doctors. And now, here's our show. All right, I think I'm on. So I hope everyone can hear me. So let me start off by saying thank you everyone for inviting me today. I am super excited to be here and this is just totally amazing. So what are we gonna be talking about today? I mean, the title of my slide is gonna be COVID-19, the impact of a pandemic while providing oncology care. So what is gonna be our roadmap? We're gonna talk about what is the virus. I always like going back to the basics. You know, the theme of our presence today is gonna to be cancer and COVID-19. I'm very excited to talk about that. And, you know, seeing a lot of outpatients with COVID, I wanna talk about still the two most common questions I always get, which is gonna be testing and vaccines, you know? And I will say a little caveat that one hard part about talking about COVID is the fact that, you know, it's changing all the time. And <laughs> they wanted me to turn my presentation in a couple of weeks ago. I'm like, I don't know if that's a good idea. I'm like watching the news right now and things are always coming up. So I'm always gonna try to keep you most up to date with that. And then I wanted to end it there, but I also do sleep medicine. So they kind of bullied me into doing a little bit of sleep at the end. So that's gonna be okay. So hopefully there have been a lot of changes about sleep in the pandemic. But the big question was when they invited me to come here was, how should I like interact with everyone like listening today? They're like, you know, Raj, you should just talk about yourself. And I'm like, are you serious? I mean, that's what you want me to do is talk about me. I'm like, this is easy. So this is what I do. Uh, one of my biggest passions is, is teaching. It always has been. And, you know, one of the, the best parts about being at USC is that, as you could tell, I get to hang out with my students, my residents, my fellows. I think there's a smile on my face everywhere I look over here, but that's my, my most favorite thing to do is just teach. And I really thought life couldn't get better than that. But then um, probably like one year, not even a year into being at USC, uh, this happened which is I was invited to go on this TV show, The Doctors. And it was kind of like last minute. And I'm like, all right, why not? The studio's not too far away. And that one quick, hey, I'm on The Doctors turned to be a seven season stint with more than 60 episodes. And uh, no, it really just opened the door. I think the, the stereotypes, they got bit by that little TV bug or whatever. And I really, really enjoyed it. And they've been awesome people. So once again, life shouldn't get better. But being on the doctors really opened up the door to a lot of opportunities that I'm so grateful for. And I get a chance to meet wonderful people and do a lot of travel. And I'm like, okay, that's it. I already peaked. Nothing else is going to happen. That's really super awesome. And then of course this happened, which was, I got, I was invited to be a co-host on this TV show called Chasing the Cure. And of course, if you could focus on this wonderful person and Curry, who's one of my mentors, who's just an awesome person to be around. And yeah, that show actually was in 2019. It was just the best thing I've ever had done. And um, then of course, around 220, around December of 2019, you know what happened, um, this, which was the pandemic. So the show didn't get um, you know, carried on, but you know, this was actually a big change. And I was really 
for myself personally, happy to actually go back to my, my roots. You know, I'm a pulmonary critical care doctor. And I think for a lot of those years, I forgot what it was like to be a doctor. And it gave me a chance to actually go back to why I went to med school for. And I was actually to help people. And you tend to forget that sometimes. And there's me in the ICU, you know, really early in the pandemic, being really proud. And yeah, that was a change for everyone. It was scary. And then, you know, um, what happened was in the pandemic, probably when it first started, I just remember people were scared to go into rooms and we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't think it would be in our backyard. And probably around July of that time, as you could tell in the top left corner, me, my wife, my three kids, if you could see them over there. Yeah, my whole family got COVID. And uh, that was really, really scary because it happened early in the pandemic. And we didn't know much about the virus at the time, know that we do now. And I got it because my little girl, if you could see her right then, she was only like, I think, six months at the time, she just had like a runny nose and, you know, we just wanted to do the right thing. And we, we tested her and we were just shocked, you know, and then that led to the whole family getting tested. And I remember that at that time, it took almost seven days to actually um, get bad, to get the results back. But regardless, you know, someone really likes me. Someone really loves my family. We were, we were great. Nothing happened to us, you know? And then um, because it was the whole family was early in the pandemic, you know, Healthline on the bottom right picked it up and did a whole series on me about what it's like to be on, on both sides, which is having the virus and, you know, helping people with it. And that led to one of, one of the coolest things that ever happened to me was I was invited to be on a panel with Dr. Fauci. And he is just an amazing person from an internal medicine standpoint. Uh, I, I remember I, <laughs> I read his books and it was a great panel and we talked a lot. And, um, and that actually happened on my birthday. And that's why they put a little happy birthday there. So that was one of the, the coolest things that happened to me. Um, but when we talk about... Um, about myself, I gave you a little background. So I thought it would be interesting for the first question to see if you, how you guys were doing to kind of take a guess. So here's me. I'm Raj, Dr. Raj, and I'm actually two races put together. I'm just kind of melded together. So I'm half Indian, and I think you've got that one already. Does anyone want to take a guess what the other half of me is? So if you want to take a guess, put it in the chat and we'll see who's right. Dr. Raj is. Let's see if anyone's going to take a guess. If no one guesses, oh, wow, I, I love some of these guesses. Oh, nice. Hawaiian, that's so cool. I'll give you, <laughs> so I'll give you a, a quick hint before I switch the slide. My mom is a nurse. My mom is probably less than four feet tall, and she loves going to church all the time. So <laughs> I don't know if anyone will take a guess. She is Filipino. <laughs> so anyway, so Dr. Raj is half Indian and half Filipino. And you know, that's cool. Well, so many people got that right, man. We should give them some prizes there, Hogue Hospital, you know? So there's my mom. And, you know, this kind of led to a picture of like my family over here. So my mom and dad, they've been married for like 52 years. And when Hogue asked me to like, you know, do this presentation, the reason why I agreed to do it was because of my dad. He's a survivor of lung cancer. He never smoked, but he got the cancer that you get for non-smokers, go figure. And currently he has CLL. So this was a huge part about, you know, making decisions about what to do and not to do during the pandemic. So, I mean, it really, it was very personal to do this kind of presentation. And there are all some beautiful pictures of my wonderful parents. 
So with that being said, I think a big part of this pandemic is who's it going to affect the most, you know, and I think the big, the answer is it is going to be the elderly, you know, I think they are going to be isolated, they are going to be lonely, they are going to be at higher risk when we talk about, you know, medical issues. So I thought there'd be a good question for everyone, who is more likely to live alone when they get older? Is it going to be uh, men or is it going to be women? I'm just curious. Hit that, hit that button. Why don't you vote and let's see what the poll says. Everyone, you know, everyone went for women and you guys are amazing because you know what the right answer is? It's women. <laughs> so you guys are just awesome. So it, it doesn't surprise me. You know, I just think about my wife and I think about my mom being so independent and I know it's got to be tough, but this is actually just interesting. They did a poll about this. So with that being said, let's go to school, literally. So let's talk about what is a virus. I think that when we talk about vaccines and all the medications that are going to be out there, well, you need to know the basics of how and why they work. So are you guys and gals ready for another question? Because I got one right here. Here's a good one. Here's how we're going to start it. Are viruses considered living? All right, let's poll the class. Oh, all right. So we got some yes. Uh, no one picked C. Very good. Very good. Took my advice. So the answer is no, there really are not living. Go figure on this. So when I think about how do you find what is living, most people would say is the ability to reproduce. Now, viruses in itself, if I just had a virus, it can't reproduce in itself. You know what they need? A host. And that's what I want to talk about right now. So what is just a virus itself? A virus is just basically just DNA or RNA. That's really just what it is. Strands of DNA or strands of RNA. And they'll be just be coupled in a protein. And this protein forms what we call a capsid. So you got a couple of DNAs or RNAs in the capsid. And most viruses are going to be surrounded by what they call an envelope. And this envelope, and you can see it, you know who makes the envelope? We do ourselves because they go into our cells and they use our machinery in our cells to reproduce, whether it's going to be a human or a mammal and even some viruses go into bacteria and use their cells. So because they can't replicate by themselves, they need us. They're really not alive. And when we talk about all of our cells, going back to that horrible thing called biochemistry, you know, every cell in our body is surrounded by what we call a lipid bilayer. And when we talk about lipids, lipids is another word for, for fat. So when these viruses are leaving our cells after they reproduce, they take some of that lipid bilayer and they form this envelope. So, you know what, if I was speaking in, in, in doctor speak, you know what I think of a virus? They're obligate intracellular parasites or just like little parasites that need us. And I think this is a great view right here. We're in the middle, you see a little DNA or RNA, and it's surrounded by a bunch of protein we call capsid. And this is the envelope. And you know what I put right here? I put some spikes on there because you know, when we talk about Corona, Corona means what? Crown. So this could be a couple of these spikes right here. And this envelope, everyone is made of lipids. So many of you are saying, why are we, uh, how do we use some of this basic science when we manage patients or ourselves or when talking to people. And here's going to be where I, I apply it. So when we talk about what do we know as the foundation of preventing the di disease from spreading and helping others, it's always what we call the big three, right? 
It's going to be good hand hygiene, social distancing, and wearing the mask. And when we talk about wearing the mask, we've been, what, more than a year into this pandemic, and people still can't wear the mask correctly. And, and you know what I mean. I'm sure you're walking around and their nose is hanging out or their mask is in some weird place. It's like, okay. And social distancing, it's getting a little confusing. Is it three feet? Is it six feet? So then there's the hand washing, you know what I mean? And then this is a true story. So, you know, right before I, I came here, I went to the bathroom just in case, you know what I mean? We all do just in case before we lecture. And when I was in there, there was some person and, you know, went to the bathroom. And of course, when they did the hand wash, do you think that person actually hit the soap bar and did the happy birthday for 20 seconds? No, there was a quick run through the water <laughs> and just took off. And you know what I'm talking about, because people do that. When we talk about why do we mention you have to use the soap, why do you have to sing happy birthday for 20 seconds, which no one does, is because of the basic science. Because remember when we talk about that envelope, we said it's made of fat, lipids. And when you use soap, what is soap, everyone? It's just a, a detergent. And what do detergents do? They bring together two things, oil and water. Because look at this little cup right here. Oil and water really don't mix at all. And that's when like you tell your husband or wife to do the dishes. And when you touch the dishes afterwards, they're all greasy because they didn't use the soap. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so that's why we use the soap is because of the fact that the soap actually binds to the fat. And what does it do is that it will tear apart the fat, that lipid on the envelope, exposing the what? Yeah, the DNA and RNA so we could destroy it. And why do we tell you to make that hand motion like this is to rub that detergent into that envelope to tear it apart. And to do this, it's like you don't want to splash the soap on. It takes around 10 to 20 seconds to do it. So, of course, they don't mention this on commercials, on the news, but this is the science that we use for something simple as washing our hands and why is it so important. So, I always like to say how, like, things that we learn sometimes will get applied. You don't even realize it. So, let me go to the next slide. So when we talk about, you know, what is a virus made of, it's a DNA or RNA, you know, and DNA is going to be double stranded over here. RNA can be double or single stranded. And a couple of the things are they are made up of bases. And that's going to be very important because, you know, during your time today, people will talk about drugs like remdesivir that we use for hospitalized patients who have COVID-19. And remdesivir works by actually mimicking something called adenine. And that's how it prevents viral replication. When we talk about vaccines today, we're going to talk about viral vector vaccines. And these viral vector vaccines, you know, are DNA viruses. And therefore, what do we need? We need things that actually will take RNA and move it back to DNA. So there are so many applications of the basics when we talk about, you know, this pandemic. And one of the most important things to do is realize that when we talk about processing of bioreplication, well, the RNA or the DNA can replicate itself. But what happens is the DNA or RNA will get translated into proteins. And these are the proteins that make the capsid. These are the proteins that will make some of the envelope over there. And if you look at the bottom of the slide, this is showing double-stranded DNA virus, single-stranded, single-stranded RNA, and double-stranded RNA. So with that being said, let's take a wild guess, everyone. Boom, one more question. Well, maybe not the last one, but what is coronavirus? Anyone want to take a, take a stab at this? So the answer is, and I have to say, everyone is so amazing, and thank you for participating in the morning. It touches me. Uh, the answer is 
D. It's actually going to be a single-stranded RNA virus. And that's going to be very important when we talk about, you know, how do we use vaccines, when we talk about mRNA vaccines, but great job on everyone. But, you know, when we talk about coronavirus, you know, coronavirus in itself has been around, you know, for a while, it just doesn't magically appear. And, you know, there are sometimes variants there. You get diseases like uh, SARS and MERS. And of course, the one we're talking about now, the disease is called COVID-19. That's from novel coronavirus. So now that we have some of the basics, you know, I want to kind of take up some of our time and talk about what about patients with cancer and COVID-19? What do you need to know at this point? And I think, you know, the first bullet point, you know, cancer patients and families and caregivers are truly disproportionately impacted by this pandemic. And I mean that. And this is why I asked to, um, you know, come and do this lecture is because, you know, my dad has CLL. And as you know, that that type of leukemia affects B cells and B cells turn into plasma cells. They make antibodies. But, you know, the antibodies that my dad makes are they're really not functional antibodies, nor does he make enough of it. So one thing my dad gets, you know, usually is going to be some IVIG. And I'm sure all the nurses are like, yeah, we know what you're talking about. And, you know, during this pandemic, you know, especially depending upon, it was, I believe it was like in between that first and second surge, it was scary, you know, like we would wonder, like, should we spread out? Should we even go into the see the doctor? I mean, is it worthwhile? What are the risks and benefits? And I really feel that's where the second bullet point comes in is that I don't think anyone's surprised if I say patients who are on chemotherapy, patients who have cancer are going to be at a higher risk, are going to be more likely to die. That's not the big secret. But I think the big thing is that people don't realize that maybe altering their treatment plan or foregoing their treatment plan actually could be just as deadly as as having the cancer itself, and in some cases, even more. And that's what I want to talk about. So I took some stats that happened throughout this pandemic. And, you know, this is the first wave, and that's the second wave. And we're talking about the impact it had on patients of cancers of all types. And it's when I look at the first wave, it, it's very, very shocking. You know, things obviously improved as we learn more, but look at the delay in surgeries, 72%. Look at the number of referrals to hematologists or oncologists. It went down 51%. Oh, man. And of course, when we talk about biopsying, making diagnosis, other things also, I mean, went down. So you can see the huge impact that this had on, you know, anytime you you, you mention something, like I always think about what do I see? Uh, lung cancer, nodules, lung cancer screening. And, you know, to have a patient delay, whether it be the follow-up CT or the PET scan or the biopsy, this is the mental stress they have to go through. So it it's not surprising, but very scary and sad at the same time. So, you know, the big thing about what I think was going on during the pandemic was working together. And I think it's easier said than done. There's so many different types of hospitals, types of doctors. But I do feel that, you know, this is the one time for cancer patients where we really need to define what is a treatment plan and work together. And that's what this picture is all about, are people talking, which is so hard during this pandemic. Everyone is so stressed. There's so many things going on. The schooling at home for everyone who has kids at home, it's so hard to spend time with your patients and really talk about what the plan should be. But that was one of the key things that I think we all could work on, whether it's an oncology patient or not. And more some of the hardships that cancer patients, you know, had to go through. I mean, I don't think anyone's surprised paying bills. I mean, my heart goes out to everyone when it comes down to struggling to, uh, you know, financially during the pandemic, buying food, of course, avoiding appointments. These scare me, lowering the dose of prescriptions, skipping regimens. You know, I have to say that 
My dad skipped a regimen of IVIG. So it, it happens, you know? So these are really important things that we don't realize, nor do we talk to our, our doctors or nurse practitioners or PAs about because, you know, time is limited when you get a chance to talk and people don't realize what others are going through. And mental state, I think that, you know, depression is huge during this time for many different reasons. And I think that when we see our patients now on top of them having a malignancy, you know, can you imagine with all the things that are going with their loved ones and family, the amount of worrying that takes place, the anxiousness, the stress, I'm sure many of the nurses could just, you know, yell out about their patients about how stressed they appear during this pandemic. And of course, I mentioned depression. So what should be kind of like our, our general, how should we approach this? You know what I mean? I think I put two strategies down here that I think will work for most patients. I think number one is going to be ensure they take appropriate precautions to avoid unnecessary exposure. I think we all agree upon that. And why did I put this little picture next to us over here? It was that about maybe two, three months ago, I was asked to go on the news to talk about double masking. I'm, I'm sure everyone heard about double masking. And it, it was so hard because of the fact that there's a lot of pandemic fatigue out there. I don't know if you folks agree with me who's listening today, but, you know, people can't even wear one mask, more or less wear it correctly. And you want me to go on the news and tell everyone, hey, this is a great time to double mask it. And I do agree the studies are there. And of course, two masks are better than one. And I'm sure three masks are better than two. But, you know, I do feel that in our cancer patients who are on chemotherapy, who have a lung cancer with underlying COPD, sure, there are certain people that would really benefit from double masking. But I think we have to choose who needs to do that. And I do agree that there are special precautions that I know that here in Norris Cancer Center, they're doing an amazing job. I'm sure you at Hoke Hospital are doing a super amazing job. And we need to do that for our patients. And of course, number two is once again, communicate. We got to lay out the plan of what we need to do, what can be delayed. Those are going to be very important. So what is going to be the impact overall and access to health? You know, I think that it was a big change. I only can speak for myself from seeing patients in person to doing telemedicine or even phone calls or other things. But yeah, you know, it was sad. I had many patients that missed appointments. Uh, many people whose patients were older didn't even know what a telemedicine uh, visit is, you know, so all these are very important. Many people who could have come to see me didn't because they're uh, very scared to travel. And the, bo the bottom ones here really, really scare me is that many people just stop meds or some meds were out of stock. And I'm like, really? So my wife is a rheumatologist and, you know, she sees patients with, with lupus. And you can imagine, you know, where I'm going with this during this pandemic, what drug was just taken up pretty much just sold out everywhere. And my poor lupus patients pretty much had to suffer yeah, I could hear you yelling it, hydroxychloroquine, right? So there are medications. That's what scares me. Every time something comes on the news, whether it's going to be famotidine or melatonin or any new study, yeah, I'm just scared it's going to be just taken out of stock. And we did, my wife did feel this when we're talking about hydroxychloroquine and a lot of her uh, lupus patients. So when we talk about cancer patients, once again, I'm just going to be very, you know, honest with you. One of the medications that my dad was on for his CLL was a rituximab-like drug, you know, and the big thing we're going to be that when we think about our immune system, when we think about the medications we're going to be on, it shouldn't affect my cancer patients getting a vaccine because I'm not worried about the cancer patient getting an infection. What we worry about the most is that 
will they amount the immune response to make the antibodies, especially when you're on a drug like a rituximab, which works on the CD20 receptors on a B cell that makes antibodies? Well, how can you make antibodies if you're blocking it? So all these things need to be discussed. And of course, as the pandemic goes on, we learn more and more about it. But at the time, it's going to be very, very scary. So I really think that this is another time to talk about the medications, what are things we could do and provide reassurance that any patient with cancer definitely should be promoted to get our vaccine. And the thing we worry about the most is not getting that antibody response. So one question that many patients have asked me, especially my lung cancer patients, are going to be, hey, are my symptoms of COVID going to be a little different than someone else's? And the answer is no. But a little caveat are going to be number one, patients on steroids, I'm sure many of you guys know patients on steroids, they may not mount a fever. So that's going to be very important. But of course, you know, we screen for fever. Coughing is so nonspecific. You know, coughing has so many etiologies. It's the last thing to disappear if you get a COVID infection. But of course, you could have all the classic flu-like symptoms over there. You could have anopsia, which is difficulty smelling. Sometimes taste can leave, which is horrible. But no, the symptoms should be very the same when we talk about uh, cancer patients with COVID or people without cancer. Are all cancers at equal risk? Well, I would just say this. The, the, the second bullet point is what the consensus is right now is that those with blood-related cancers, multiple myeloma, certain leukemias, people who have advanced cancers, especially in the lung, and I mentioned already, who have underlying you know, uh, emphysema, COPD, of course, they're gonna be the most vulnerable. And on top of that, most cancers, not all, tend to happen when you're older in age. And I'm sure everyone can attest, many of your patients with cancer that see you have diabetes, have cardiovascular disease. And of course, all these will add together when we talk about those risk factors. So let's kind of switch gears right now to talk about some testing and also talking about some of the vaccines. So I put a couple of quick questions here for just to go over. People always ask me, hey, what kind of tests are out there? So there's two tests, everyone. One is gonna be the gold standard. That's gonna be a PCR test. Everyone always asks me, what does the RT stand for? That stands for real time. And I'm sure many of you have experienced, I'm sorry, that brain biopsy up through the nose. And of course we modified that now to be the brain biopsy plus a a uh, swab of the cheek and maybe spitting in a cup. And these are going to be, PCR is going to be the gold standard. Antigen tests are looking for pieces of the virus. And of course, there are the rapid tests. And I always remember, remember there's a rapid strep test that look for an antigen. So antigens are usually rapid tests that you can have. And, you know, what are the guidelines after getting exposed? People are still getting exposed. It's scary, you know, that, of course, the first thing is always consider just isolating, quarantining, don't affect other people. But you could get tested immediately. But, you know, that may not be uh, the most appropriate time in the fact that you may get a false negative test. And if you have a negative test, you may want to go back in five to seven days, especially if you want to break quarantine. But the key thing is, if you are going to have the highest yield of getting a positive test, we tend to do that when you are symptomatic, which kind of leads to my next question, which is going to be, well, when is the test most accurate? And here's a big blow up of that swab they put in your nose. Here's my envelope. Here's my spike protein. Here's that RNA that we're looking for with that real-time PCR. And the key thing is, if you are symptomatic, that's the highest yield of getting a positive test. And like I said, within that first three days, chances are that you may get a negative test. So be careful. So when we talk about testing, you know, there's always the false positives, the false negatives, but the one that's always going to be the most concerning is what happens if you have a false negative test where you're down here in the box. And this is where <clears throat> 
the most important thing, and I should kind of put these bullets kind of reversed is, yeah, you may actually increase the spread to other people. I mean, there's no downside to having a false positive. You're going to quarantine. You're going to get some time off of work. Just joking. But, you know, I think the false negative is what we worry about the most. Spreading it to other people, even yourself, may get a lack of delay of, of certain types of therapies. So that's what we worry about. And this is a classic word that's been used throughout the pandemic, which is the, the incubation of, of the virus. And by definition, incubation means from the moment you're exposed, infected to the virus, when do you develop these symptoms? And, you know, that ballpark is going to be somewhere between two and 14 days. And that's where, you know, if ever you feel you had a close contact and you don't know how many days do I need to be isolated, you know, the default is always going to be 14 days. Of course, there are different guidelines about getting tested and making it 10 days, but 14 days is always going to be the gold standard. And when we talk about getting the symptoms, well, most people will get symptoms somewhere between four to six days. That's going to be the sweet spot where we think about getting the symptoms. And when I think about the pandemic, I always think about things that were very confusing on the news. And does anyone remember this? Remember this thing called asymptomatic versus pre-symptomatic? I mean, were you frustrated? I mean, I was pretty frustrated. I mean, I don't go around, you know, using this clinical terminology. Hey, uh, I'm feeling, uh, are you feeling a little pre-symptomatic today? You know, <laughs> everyone is going to be without symptoms before you get symptoms. But the key thing is, is that the take home message is that it is this overlap between being asymptomatic and symptomatic right here in the screen where you're going to be the most infective, you know, and no one knows who's actually going to develop symptoms, but this is where transmission could be the worst. And I think that's one thing we could have done a lot better throughout this pandemic in the media was actually conveying some of these really, really confusing terminology. So people are asking nowadays about antibodies. Should I get an antibody? It's a hot topic. And I really would just like to say that, you know, we don't make diagnosis based upon antibodies. And when we talk about the antibodies, it's getting a lot more confusing now. It's not just checking the total antibody against coronavirus. There's actually neutralizing antibodies that you could order that make it more confusing. But as a clinical rule, I mean, most people, if you get an antibody, will occur one to three weeks after an infection. But we usually don't go around testing for antibodies. And let me show this slide, which is going to be kind of the, the summary of all these tests, and we'll focus on antibodies at the end, that there are three tests out there. There's going to be a molecular test, which is going to be the real-time PCR, the gold standard. And I'm really happy to say it doesn't take a week anymore. It goes, you could probably get that within a day super accurate. Antigen tests are usually rapid and usually can get results within hours in most cases. Now, antibody testing. Now, right here on the bottom right, I put down that the FDA approved these neutralizing antibodies. Because if you just get a total antibody, it could be a false positive. It could be antibodies against other types of coronavirus. And the really one that really matters is going to be the antibodies against these, you know, the spike protein. But it just makes it more confusing. And I was part of a study here at USC. So after I got my second vaccine, they stuck me in the finger and they, you know, showed me I had antibodies. So I was really happy. It looks like I'm holding a pregnancy test or something. But this test, I asked the person who's running the study, how much does this little test cost? And does anyone take a guess? This little test right here, just to see if I have an antibody, costs $50. Now, how many millions of people have COVID in the world, in California, in the States, and if they all get a $50 test, you know, so it doesn't make a lot of sense. So I just wanted to mention that.
So with that being said, I want to like kind of spend the last our remaining time talking about some of the, the vaccine questions that people could have, then we'll end up with a little sleep. So when we talk about vaccines, really hot topic, it's always changing. And by the way, if you want to watch me tomorrow, <laughs> uh, tomorrow, eight o'clock in the morning, channel seven, you could see me uh, on the news talking about more coronavirus. So this is actually a picture of me at USC. It was really a, a really special moment to get my own vaccine. I was very proud about it. They put it on, our, on the screensaver at USC. So I kind of feel bad for the people who don't like me at USC. Now they have to see me every time they turn on their computer. So I feel bad for them. But it was a really great honor. And, and thank you, Keck, for that. Uh, but here are going to be the three types of vaccines. There are protein-based there are what we call the viral vector vaccines. And down below is going to be a messenger RNA vaccine. Now, we are only using the viral vector and mRNA. So what is this going to be protein-based? This is the classic types of vaccines we all grew up with, where you take part of the virus and you take you inactivate it and make it very weak. And basically, your own body will create antibodies to, and of course, look at this, what seems to be the theme here, the special protein is a spike protein. Every vaccine, the target is gonna be that spike protein. So yeah, your own body makes antibodies to the spike protein. So none of these are FDA approved in the United States. We're not using this, but this is the quote unquote old school type vaccine. Um, the one that we're using a lot of is down below number three, which is gonna be the messenger RNA vaccine. Because remember what is coronavirus? Single stranded, hence single strand, RNA. And what we do is that we kind of surround it in a capsid and we give it to us. It goes into our cells. Our cells, our use, they use our mechanisms to uh, replicate that mRNA. And this actually codes into what? It translates to this protein, which is a spike protein, and we make antibodies to it. So this is going to be the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine. Over here, this is the viral vector vaccine. So adenovirus, adenovirus is a double-stranded DNA virus. And therefore, what do you need to do? We need to actually take that DNA, turn it to RNA, and then from RNA, it makes these spike proteins. And this virus gets injected into our body. It's an inact it's a virus that is seen in, I believe, chimps, and it doesn't cause us any symptoms. And that virus gets taken up into our cells. And eventually we will make the spike protein that our immune system will make antibodies too. And this is kind of like the Johnson and Johnson and the AstraZeneca vaccine. So with all those being said, let me give you some take home messages about some of these vaccines out there that are always changing. When we talk about the Pfizer and the Moderna, we know that the key thing is it's 94 to 95% effective for symptomatic. And that's the key thing. It's always this play on words for symptomatic disease. You know, Johnson & Johnson is 100% effective in preventing death, great, and hospitalizations. And let me just say this. I think the, the, the worst part about these vaccines are always going to be when we talk about it in the news are all the numbers we throw out there. And it's so confusing for so many people. You know, is it 65% for this and 85 for this? I think that it's great that we have variety, but variety is causing us to second guess what vaccine we're getting. Is this the best one? And it's making it very confusing for our patients. Immune response starts as early as seven days for the Johnson and Johnson's. And and vaccines, the big thing, they're talking about the variants. We know that, you know, more things are popping up. They do offer some protection, but how much? That's always still going to be the big question. 
What we don't know, I think this is going to be very important, what we don't know about the vaccine, does it reduce asymptomatic infection? Does it reduce transmission? That's a super hot topic. And how long is that immunity going to last? So here are some uh, headlines I grabbed and put on my, my slide at the last moment. So right now, there are some trials that are mixing two different types of vaccines. So remember, there was a big shortage of vaccines when they first came out. So in the UK, they were dosing someone with the Pfizer, and then they would give them maybe the Moderna. So all right, um, interesting. The AstraZeneca vaccine, which is not FDA approved in the United States, uh, sent out some data that it may reduce transmission, which is great, but we're not talking studies that show through contact tracing. They're using, you know, a surrogate, which is how long does your PCR for a nasal swab, how fast it becomes negative. This was interesting. Pfizer vaccine may be less effective in obesity, which was a super hot topic. And the reason why that's interesting is historically vaccines are not weight-based, but this is a new virus. These are new vaccines, who knows? And this is what I'm going to be talking about in the news tomorrow, which is there's some new data out there that people are long haulers. I'm sure someone who's listening to this right now has symptoms are called a long hauler and they have horrible symptoms of fatigue and weakness and brain fog and shortness of breath that it may help out with the symptoms. So these are very uh, positive things that I've been hearing when it comes to some of the vaccines. So let me just get a couple more slides about vaccines. And when we talk about the messenger RNA, it's kind of a blown up slide of how it works. You know, here is the, the inside of the coronavirus with a single stranded messenger RNA. And what do we do? We pack these into a lipid nanoparticle. Why is it lipid? Because it needs to go through our cells, phospholipid bilayer. Then inside our cells, we actually will translate that mRNA and make a bunch of spike proteins that get released. And we make the antibodies. So this is the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine. And what are some of the, the, the take-home messages? I'm sure many of you listening, all of you listening, I may have the vaccine, Pfizer two shot, Moderna two shot. Initially, Pfizer had to be super, super, super freezing cold, but newer data says it doesn't need to be as cold as when it first came out. And even though there are some uh, lower age limits, new studies are trying to study the vaccine in pediatrics and kids. So that's gonna be changing as we speak. And for the viral vector vaccine, I, you know, I mentioned that we use adenovirus, which is a DNA virus. The one we use is for chimpanzees, not for humans. And what we do is that we put our coding of messenger RNA, we turn it to DNA, we send it inside, and our own body, our own cells will translate that DNA to RNA to proteins, spike proteins, our antibodies form against them, and we get immunity, hopefully. And that's how they work. So as you know, Johnson Johnson is the newest one that came out. Overall efficacy was around 66% very effective in people to prevent severe disease, but of course you still could have milder courses. And the big thing when it first came out, it did have some effect in some of the South African strains, but of course now there's the Brazilian strains. There's so many different strains. It's very difficult to keep up with. And the Johnson Johnson's, as many of you know, is a single dose. That's very practical for many of our patients. Um, and at the time, there were no cases of anaphylaxis. Of course, when, when we got the messenger RNA vaccine, there were a few cases of anaphylaxis when it first came out. And this is one of the happiest moments since the pandemic started. My mom and dad got their vaccines. It just warms me, so I wanted to put this here. Let me close off by talking about sleep, and I can't believe where did this time go? 
my God, maybe I just did talk too much. So when we talk about sleep and COVID, what, what, what can I say? But number one, all my patients, my sleep medicine patients, they're all a bunch of night owls now. Why? Is because, you know, there, there isn't any routine during the pandemic. There's so much screen time. There's so much, you know, uh, Zoom <laughs> meetings at home. So a lot of my patients are going to bed very late and waking up very later. So there's a big shift in my circadian rhythm of many of my patients of being night owls. And now as things are opening up again, they got to wake up on time. It's been very difficult for them. Also, you know, during this pandemic, many people have been having nightmares. I don't know if anyone heard that out there about the nightmares that happened when you were during the pandemic. And people always ask me why. Well, number one, during this pandemic, total sleep time across the country actually increased by 20%. So if you have more time to sleep, you definitely have more time to dream. And you know what else? We just mentioned that most people are now night owls, meaning that they wake up much later in the morning. And you know what, everyone? When we talk about vivid dreams, vivid dreams probably mean they're having them in REM sleep, rapid eye movement, and we get most of our REM sleep closer to the morning. So you can imagine that. And why are they nightmares, everyone? Oh, my God, post-traumatic stress disorder. My patients, you know, staff, emergency department, uh, ICU. So it's not surprising. In fact, during other, you know, big uh, stressful times in our country, like uh, 9-11, the Twin Towers, it was documented. There have been nightmares that were going on. So it's not surprising that this occurs. So when we talk about COVID and sleep, of course, I worry the most about my elderly patients. I mean, elderly always have difficulty sleeping. And on top of that, you have them isolated. So let's ask one question about the elderly. How much sleep do we need after 65 years of age? Um, there's four choices there. Let's pull the class. Let's see what we get. All right, what do we got? I'm curious. Uh, outstanding. So the answer is seven to eight hours per night. Why? So when studies have shown that when you get older, you still need seven to eight hours of sleep every night. Is that to say that it's easy as you get older? You know what I mean? As you get older, it's difficulty initiating sleep, maintaining sleep, multiple awakenings throughout the night. And of course, during the pandemic, you mean, you know, not having your set bedtime and wake time, you know, depression, all these things factor in. So I thought it'd be really good if we could actually uh, just um, briefly talk about insomnia, because it seems like everyone's always asking me what to do with insomnia. And I'm sure someone in the audience, I can't see you, has a Fitbit or a, some kind of monitoring device for their sleep. And it's not bad, you know what I mean? Um, so that's very a very hot topic when we talk about uh, monitoring insomnia. And you know, if someone were asked me, hey, what is the best thing to help out people with sleep problems? You know, my default is always going to be cognitive behavioral therapy, your thoughts, your actions, you know, they work acutely, they're sustained over time. And people always ask, you know, is there any evidence about that? There were studies that show that just doing these behavioral therapies and cognitive therapies work both acutely and chronically. People will say, well, give me some examples. And I know I don't have enough time left, but the last two over here is sleep restriction and stimulus control. So what is uh, stimulus control, everyone? Simply put, the bed. 
is only meant for one thing. And what is that? Oh, yes, sleeping. It's only meant for sleeping. Very good. And so if you can't be able to fall asleep within 15 to 20 minutes, what do you do? Leave the bed and do things that are non-stimulating and only go back to bed when you're ready for sleep. Sleep restriction means set bedtime and set wake time, even on weekends, even on holidays, even on Friday night. So you have to have a set bedtime and wake time in the morning. Please, please, please don't hit that snooze button. Wake up. Try to get outside. We live in California. We're so lucky. I'm so lucky. Get that sunlight to suppress melatonin, reset that circadian rhythm. Um, there are many sleeping ads out there. I can't tell you during this pandemic how many people were asking me about, should I go on one? And it is very confusing. I'm sure every nurse listening here has patients that are on one of these or asking questions about it. And it is very confusing what to pick and if we should even give it. Take-home message is going to be that no matter what sleep aid I offer or don't offer, that they do not improve daytime performance. And of course, when we talk about AGS, it's the American Geriatric Society, all sedative hypnotics are on that list called the beers list. This is a list of medications that could have bad outcomes in the elderly. And what do I worry about over here? falls. You don't want to be on one of these medication and falls at night. So what are going to be some of the go-tos? Well, we call these in medical terms, non-benzodiazepine, benzodiazepine agonists. These are things like Ambien. And interestingly enough, Ambien comes in a lot of different forms. You know, there's the pill, there's actually a nasal spray. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> and there is a sublingual pill over here. And uh, Ambien goes by the generic name Zolpidem is right in the middle between two other uh, brand name drugs that we call Sonata, which is very short acting. Think of the S for short and Lunesta, think of L for long. That's the same type of drug, but when do I use long acting drugs? If you have early morning awakenings, then of course, or multiple awakenings throughout the night, then you need a longer acting medication. These ambient like drugs, are benzos, they work on the benzo receptor, but they really focus only on one subreceptor called alpha. So you don't get the other properties that Ativan or Valium or Xanax will offer because these are a little more selective. And I just wanna say this, everyone, someone was gonna ask about melatonin. So I'm just gonna jump on it right away. Melatonin is not a drug, it's a dietary supplement. It's not very potent as a hypnotic. It's good for shifting your circadian rhythm. And my take home message is always going to be, it's not about the dose, it's about the timing. So when should you take it? And it's going to be two hours before your desired sleep time. And there are other expensive drugs, which are melatonin activators. This is one drug right here called brand name Rosarum. And the good thing about a melatonin activator is that it doesn't do anything about your respiratory drive. It doesn't do anything about any of the other receptors in your body. So, you know, it's something good if you have especially sleep onset insomnia. And for my last couple of slides, was it called? Doxepin is a tricyclic antidepressant that's been around for decades, but it got FDA approval at a much, much lower dose to help out for sleep. In my elderly patients, this has a good side effect profile. It's safe, something that you would take every night, not as needed. So it's something to consider, but of course it is a TCA. So you always have to worry about drug-drug interactions. And TCA stands for tricyclic antidepressant. And this is the newest category of uh, insomnia drug out there. It works on something called orexin. Orexin is a neurotransmitter in your brain that is stimulating. So what, is, so what do companies do? They try to block it to help you sleep. So many psychiatrists have referred patients to me to start 
this category medication because, you know, in the past, most of the sleeping aids work on either a GABA receptor, which is basically for benzos, or an, a histamine receptor. Because remember, everyone, histamine, I'm going to ask the class this, histamine is what type of neurotransmitter? Is it alerting or is it sedating? Any guesses you want to put in the chat? I love it. It's like a 50-50. So the answer is it's alerting. And that's why when you use Benadryl, what does Benadryl do? It blocks it. So it makes you sleepy. Good job. You guys are the smartest group ever. So think these are some new drugs out there, okay? And I wanted to say that many people use herbal remedies. I don't know. I just want to list a few of them. Valerian root. Of course, there's someone out there using CBD. Don't raise your hand. I don't need to know. <laughs> Tryptophan is the amino acid that forms melatonin. Some people take magnesium for its relaxation. But the key thing is always let your physician know anytime you take any of these dietary supplements. And there are a lot of innovative sleep products. So I just wanted to say in one of my last slides is that getting good sleep is not easy. I'm sure you'll realize that, especially during this pandemic. And, you know, if you have insomnia, you have to ask yourself, well, what part of your sleep puzzle is missing to get good sleep? Is it the puzzle piece light? Are you very light sensitive? And maybe you should use a blue light shade. Are you very sensitive to noise? Maybe noise canceling headphones or, you know, me and my kids and my wife, we love background noise. So while always like a, a little running river in the background or some, or a little waves crashing on the shore, but this goes into the title of like maybe a little bit of the white noise. And lately, a lot of people have been asking me about this. I don't know if many of you know what this is. This is a weighted blanket. So if some of you need to have that snuggle and hugging effect when you sleep, especially being lonely during this pandemic, uh, weighted blankets may be something that you may want to just try or maybe you should put on your Christmas list and have someone send it to you because they're not cheap. <laughs> but with all that being said, I know I went over, so bad Dr. Raj, but here is my, my thank you slide right here. And I really do want to say thank you. I know we covered a lot, but I just wanted to give it my all. I hope you enjoyed the, uh, the presentation. And a couple things that I hope you follow me on Instagram. Don't roll your eyes. Don't make fun of me. I, would, I always pull up, put all my articles and my TV appearances on there. So follow me on Instagram if you want to. And I don't know if you know this. I want to say thank you to Hogue. This whole lecture is going to be on my podcast. So if any of you uh, listen to podcasts, you could hear this lecture again on the Dr. Rod Show. And with that being said, I wish you all the best. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.